You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We certainly appreciate being a part of your day. And my goodness, folks, what a day it will be. It's a data deluge day from Uncle Sam. We had this morning core CPI data, a measure of that inflation. We're going to check in with Mike Zuzlo of Global Commodity Analytics here in just a moment about those reports. And then, of course, later on this afternoon or later on this morning, rather, USDA will be releasing their January World agricultural supply and demand estimates. The trade is getting prepared for those numbers to move the markets. We'll talk with Mike about that. And then in segment two, we're going to take a look at the cattle market. Continue to see exceptionally strong sales coming from auction barns across the country of these feeder cattle moving into feedlots. That enthusiasm's there in the cattle market. How long will it stick with us? Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company will join us in segment two. And then we're going to talk with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. He testified yesterday with the EPA on behalf of the renewable volume obligations that that industry is grappling with. He's going to fill us in on how they feel about these proposed volume obligations from the EPA and what they're looking for as EPA gets closer to that final 2023 renewable volume obligation number. Before we jump into all of that, however, we've got to unpack what's happening in the broad economy, and it's no surprise the focus is on inflation. Mike Zuzalo, founder of Global Commodity Analytics, has been watching the markets this morning. And Mike, were there any major surprises in this morning's CPI report from the Labor Department? I don't think there are any major surprises, Mike, but that probably would indicate to me that the Federal Reserve is not going to change much of their policy stance, and I think they're going to remain fairly hawkish. And to give you an example of some of the more detailed analysis, the unleaded uh, or gasoline prices for the month of December were down 12.5%, but egg prices were up over 11%. So we're starting to see more of a split in terms of what is remaining inflated and it's it's drawing more into a category or a column of supply related problems and so their blunt instrument of raising interest rates and using monetary policy is helping on the demand side cut demand back but with supply issues they can't really do much about that and so they're kind of in a tough spot if you ask me especially with this Asian market rallying this week. I, I don't think they're going to change their stance much. And I think they're probably going to remain hawkish and keep on the rate path increase and probably not neutralize until we get closer to March. Okay. And what was interesting to me reading through this report, Mike, was the fact you touched on it, that gasoline cost has come down so much it pulled overall inflation actually down month over month. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, you know, this is where the four-week implied demand numbers that we get every week from the Department of Energy, along with all of our ethanol numbers and unleaded gas stocks numbers, continue to support the idea that we're down about five and a half to six and a half percent 
on a four-week implied demand basis for both unleaded and distillate fuels, your di your diesel and heating oil. So that, that high price has been cured with high prices. And so that's I think that's where the, most of the heavy lifting of Fed policy has been done. They're gonna It's going to be difficult for them to do much in terms of cooling off a 6.5% year-over-year CPI inflation number, even though that was the smallest increase since October of 2021. Mike, that 6.5% annual CPI number, I've spoken with a lot of economists who have said that in order to get inflation to come down, we've got to have that Fed rate over that rate of inflation. The Fed's talking about 5%. Is that going to get the job done, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, that. I think that, you know, broad brush, that is exactly right. But I would also say the Fed looks more at the real interest rate, and, and that's where it does include inflation on top of the nominal or uh, what we see on the screen. Uh, interest rate. I think one of the things that the Fed has kind of tapped into that I continue to follow, Mike, is the Atlanta Fed. They do a specific year in advance, uh, year ahead inflation expectations. And those numbers just came out this week. And they, they remain about at 3% a year from now. The Fed probably wants that between two and three before they start tapping the brakes. All right, 2 to 3%. We've still got a ways to go. And Mike, I understand one of the things the Fed is keeping an eagle eye on this year is labor. We also had some jobs data come out this morning. Anything surprising on that front? I think it cooled the jets of the dollar break and the crude oil rally. And I think that's really what I look at at the end of the day, obviously at the end of this week and the end of this month is do we get above $80 crude oil markets? Do we get below a 102 US dollar market? Those are major resistance and support levels that would take out you know, support resistance for going back one to two years, Mike. So the labor numbers did come in. An initial unemployment claims came in lower by about 10,000. That doesn't seem like a lot, but the trade estimates were 215, actual 205. I think the Fed will look at that. I'm really glad you mentioned the dollar value there because I hadn't looked. We are seeing it drop today. Oh, 102.7 is where we're at today. Mike, if we get below that 102 number, would that be a signal to the investment houses to put some more non-commercial money into the ags? Yeah, I think it would be a tailwind for the index funds. Exactly right. And I think this goes along with the idea if we go below 102 in the U.S. dollar, that takes you below a trend line that was based off the 2020 lows. And so that really does suggest that your at least your your strength in the dollar is going to be really mitigated at that point. And that's where it goes back to the Asian rally, along with lower dollar values. I think that would attract some commodity money. This Asian rally that we're watching, Mike, it, is it still developing or is COVID starting to slow down the economy of China? No, it's still developing. I think the Lunar New Year is going to be a terrific hurdle for us to go get above as far as bullishness in Asia, Mike. We're at about a six-month high in the Hong Kong equity index, the Hang Seng. I think that's the thing to be watching here as we get into Lunar New Year, along with that offshore Chinese yuan. That is also up around a six-month high right now. Mike, we're seeing the U.S. federal government pursue lots of action to combat inflation. Are we hearing similar stories in China? Is that a concern in that country yet? 
I don't think it is. In fact, the Chinese data came out and their producer prices continue to show, you know, be in the red at this point. Um, their, their CPI is plus 1.8 year over year. Their PPI is a negative seven tenths of a percent year over year. Until you get those producer prices rolling higher, I think your consumer prices are going to stay very locked in, especially with the COVID wave they're having. Indeed, they are. Mike, thinking of China, have they made any additional purchases from South America, either of corn or beans this week? Well, I haven't seen anything on either. I think the market has been really focused upon the Mexican business, but I haven't seen much come out of China at this point, Mike. And I think that's where the weekly export sales with all the data that's come out haven't really looked at that in too much detail yet this morning. There is a lot to digest this Thursday. So much coming. We'll be watching for that supply and demand estimate report a little bit later on this morning from the USDA. Mike, I know you've probably got a lot of work to do to prepare for that release. Thanks for joining us today. Always appreciate your insight on these market issues. Mike, thanks for having me. And folks, stay with us when AOA returns. We're going to look into this fire cattle market with Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a bit with more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Each season, farmers put it all on the line. So it's just good business to get every advantage you can. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can give yourself a season-long advantage over weeds, and it can help boost your yield potential. Show weeds you mean business and learn more about guaranteed weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash spray early. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, 
you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We're going to be talking cattle with Chris Swift, the Swift Trading Company, here in just a moment. But before we get into that, we're seeing some other news in the beef and cattle space. Notably, this ties back to some of the funds that were released during the COVID um, uh, pandemic, back when that first got started. And it comes down to federal money going to JBS, the large packing house based in Brazil. The U.S. government is investigating how much money went to JBS. It's noted that uh, they have received more than $25 million in government contracts since their 2020 guilty plea for corruption, violating the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And this is putting some spotlight on what JBS does and what the U.S. government does with JBS. They did note, and Politico is the source that has been broken this, they have been digging through these emails between USDA and JBS on this pandemic assistance. They note that JBS has received nearly $400 million in federal contracts since October 2017, covering different things like nutrition assistance, school summer meal programs, food bank uh, refilling, that sort of thing. And in November, Secretary Vilsack told Politico that removing JBS from the contracts would impair competitive choice for the government, given that they are such a large player in the industry. So it's going to be some pushback. There will be some market discussion here as far as how these contracts continue to roll out on issues like meat as vital as they are. Now, we don't know if they, if Uncle Sam will be pushing for any of that money to come back. It sounds as though the main crux of the debate is, can JBS continue to receive these types of uh, of funds from the U.S. government? And we'll see. As I mentioned, this story is just being fleshed out as of right now. We'll continue to see how this thing plays out longer term. Uh, before we get to Chris here, we do have a, just a quick update from Brazil. Of course, as we wait on the USDA's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates to be released later today, They'll be providing some insight, their take, on how things look down in Brazil. But we've also got some reports coming from in-country. And from Sao Paulo, Brazilian farmers, it's reported, are poised to grow a much larger soybean crop than expected. We've been talking about this on the program. In Brazil, the expectation now is that growers will produce a record 153.4 million ton soybean crop. This is according to AgroConsult. They're an agribusiness consultancy down there in Brazil. They released this forecast on Wednesday. 
And they say they are planning their field expedition, effectively a crop tour that's going to run through 12 different Brazilian states. And they say that will account for about 95% of total national output in Brazil. Soy yields are expected to rise. They are thinking that yields are going to be 59.260 kilo bags per hectare. Now that takes a breaking down. I can't do that math in my head. But of course, they're talking about basically 60 120 pound bags per hectare um, and that would be up from 51.8 bags at the end of last season so we'd be looking at about a three percent increase in terms of production on top of the growth in soy acres that we have seen there across that south american country the outlook does continue to look good. Andre De Basante, who runs AgroConsult's top uh, crop tours, told folks that, quote, the outlook for the soy crop is good despite climate concerns related to the regularization of rains. That's a theme we've talked about with John Baranek several times on this program. This is the rainy season for Brazil. They are trying to capture as much moisture as they possibly can so they can have enough gas in the tank, so to speak, to get that second crop, safrina corn, all the way to the finish line. Some interesting other news that we are keeping an eye on. I did just want to make note of the fact that we do have some word here on the gas stove ban. I mentioned this a few days ago. It was a report from the Consumer Product Safety Administration that there was a recent study showing that gas stoves contributed particulates and pollution into the air of people's homes, could have exacerbated asthma, all of this different stuff. Richard Trumka, Jr., head of the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, said that banning gas stoves was on the table. Mentioned that earlier this week. There has since been a phenomenal amount of pushback to this idea. There have been numerous scientists going over the study that uh, Trumka has used to say that we need to ban gas stoves. And uh, what they found is perhaps some shoddy science at hand there. Um, as of right now, gas stoves are used in about 40% of American households. So the idea that we're just going to rip them out all of a sudden does seem a little bit far-fetched. This pushback is going to continue. They do say the Consumer Product Safety Commission says they are going to continue to look, but they, quote, called it a hidden hazard in homes. And Trumpka mentioned, quote, any option is on the table. If products can't be made safe, then they should be banned, end quote. Lots of different organizations are pushing back on this. Of course, we've used gas stoves safely in kitchens across the world, around the world, for quite some time. So we'll continue to follow that as it gets a little closer. Got a quick look here at some demand news for U.S. consumers. We're going to be talking beef here in just a moment. One of the places U.S. consumers like to get beef, of course, is fast food locations. One of the more popular fast food places, or at least a fast food establishment whose growth has been astronomical, at least pre-pandemic, appears as though they are ready to start that growth up again. I'm talking here about In-N-Out Burger. They are well known on, uh, on the West Coast, and they are going to continue to expand. Uh, they did announce they are going to uh, open their first store in Tennessee by 2026. Uh, they said, we've heard years, we've heard requests from customers in Tennessee for years to bring an in and out to that state. They do say they're going to build an office in Franklin, Tennessee and continue their expansion to the West. 
They note they're going to spend $125 million in Tennessee, will be the eighth state that In-N-Out Burger has moved into. Their initial plan is to create about 275 jobs, and uh, they are hoping to open their first Tennessee restaurant in Nashville. Certainly makes sense that that's be the place that they would put that In-N-Out Burger and that is what they are planning to do. Taking a look at some of the other news from around the world, we've got additional updates here in the world of HPAI. Highly pathogenic avian influenza continues to spread. Most recently, we've seen it impact the country of Japan. It was announced earlier this week that 10 million layers have been culled in that country in order to help arrest the spread of uh, HPAI, highly pathogenic avian influenza, and the outbreaks are continuing. There are concerns now in the poultry industry. Brian Ernest of CoBank has noted this, that HPAI could become a persistent year-round disease for poultry producers. Thinking back to the outbreak that happened in 2014-2015, that was a fairly typical disease cycle for HPAI. It exploded. It was carried by wild birds traveling up and down their, their migratory flyways. It infected domestic birds. Those flocks were culled, and then that reduced the overall exposure of HPAI in the atmosphere, and we had two or three years without it being such an impact. The return that we've seen over the past two years certainly has poultry folks concerned. They were expecting to see a decline in cases over the winter after those migratory birds had moved to the south, and it has not seemed to happen. HPAI continues to spread across the country. I don't have any new updates of infections for this week, but it is expected that the global spread is going to continue. And the worry is if we can't get a handle on it here in the winter, when the overall infectivity is declined or is, or is at its lowest, I suppose, in the cold weather, then it could be shaping up for more trouble as we get into 2023. We talked earlier with Mike Zuzalo about the, the price on eggs. Eggs are up substantially across the country. Folks in, in California, some other West Coast, more urban places are talking 8 to $9 per dozen for eggs. Those elevated prices are going to be with us for some time. The hits to the layer operations across the country continue, and it takes time to get those, those flocks rebuilt, get those barns refilled, and to get that poultry, uh, that egg production, back up to normal. Now, there has been a bit of a slowdown in HPAI infections amongst uh, broiler and turkey production. So we are seeing that come down just a little bit. That is good news there for those folks who are looking to see a little bit of a break in some of that poultry and egg pricing. Well, folks, when AOA returns here in just a little bit, we're going to dig into what happened earlier this week with the EPA hearing around the renewable volume obligations. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the RFA, will join us here for segment three. We'll talk about Chris Swift, hopefully get him on at the end of the program. Stay with us for more AOA right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. collaboration platform on ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next Monthly Grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, a big day on Thursday. A lot of various reports out headlined by the WASDE report, the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates for January, along with the quarterly grain stocks numbers from USDA out at 11 a.m. Central Time. Throw on top of that inflation data, jobs numbers out on Thursday morning. The Consumer Price Index fell 0.1% month-on-month in December following two years of increases. Analysts had expected to be flat in December. The CPI rose 6.5% year-on year down from 7.1% the previous month and below analyst expectations of 6.6%. Core CPI that excludes the more volatile food and energy sectors rose 0.3% month on month as expected. First-time claims for unemployment benefits fell to just 205000 in the week ending January 7th. Also, the Rosario Grain Exchange overnight slashing its quartered soybean production estimates to 45 and 37 million metric tons, respectively, in Argentina. That's down from USDA's December estimates. USDA will be updating its numbers again with a January WASDE. We're curious to see what they do with Argentina numbers. It'll be something that's one of the headline numbers that's going to be watched here out of the WASDE and quarter quarterly grain stocks reports also watching the export side on corn will that be lowered due to lack of demand that's something to keep an eye on also and also what will the uh, feed numbers look like how will that impact livestock trade keeping an eye on that too a lot of data coming out going to be a very volatile day here overall soybeans up moderately cord and wheat down slightly with livestock trade under moderate pressure here as we work through the trading session so far ahead of the WASDE report. Crude oil up about 1%, and the stock market is relatively flat here on the day so far. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite.
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. AOA continues today, and we're turning our attention next to the biofuel business. We've seen a lot of attention from Washington, D.C. on the biofuel space largely. We finally saw some much-delayed renewable volume obligations. How much biofuel does Uncle Sam require to be blended into America's fuel supply? Came out late, as they usually do from the EPA, but we're starting to get some firmness under these numbers. Earlier this week, they held a hearing, EPA, I should say, held a hearing, heard testimony from a lot of folks in the biofuel space, and one of those who testified was Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. He joins us today. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me this morning, Mike. Let's talk first about the hearing earlier this week. Jeff, what was the purpose of the EPA's hearing on RVOs? Right. So EPA, as you pointed out, did put out a proposal for the renewable fuel standard volumes for uh, this this year, 2023, as well as 2024 and 2025. And so this is the first time ever that they have proposed three years worth of RFS requirements all at once, uh, which we actually support. We think it, it provides some uh, longer-term certainty and, and predictability. Uh, but because this is kind of a, a novel approach or a new approach that EPA is taking to the RFS, uh, they held a big public hearing and, and gave public stakeholders the opportunity to share their thoughts and, and concerns and questions about this proposal. And, and, and there were a lot of people who had a lot of things to say. There were more than 200 people that testified at the hearing. It, it actually lasted two days, both Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, so EPA got an earful. They got a lot of feedback from a lot of different folks um, across the entire spectrum, um, people who care about the RFS. Um, our, our view, and, and I was uh, fortunate uh, to testify uh, early on, on Tuesday, um, is that this is a good proposal for the renewable fuels industry, and, and ethanol specifically we think does very well with this proposal. Um, EPA is, is proposing strong volumes for uh, conventional renewable fuels for this year and the next two years, uh, those volumes are grow slightly from the current levels, um, which is what we were asking uh, to see from EPA and the administration in this proposal. So we do think that uh, what EPA has laid out would create a firm foundation for the future of the renewable fuel standard. Uh, we have encouraged them to finalize those strong volumes for renewable fuels. You know, the, the proposal isn't perfect. There's some things in there that we were not wild about, um, like the way they are proposing to introduce electricity into the renewable fuel standard. Um, but overall, it's still a very solid proposal, and, and we're very much in favor of EPA moving forward with it. You know, I'm interested. We've seen so much attention on ethanol over this past year. We've heard a lot of expansions. We've heard a lot of folks get fired up about ethanol for uh, more so than they've been in recent years. And Jeff, does a three to five year or excuse me, a three year set rule, does it afford enough flexibility that the industry can continue to grow? 
Well, I, I, I do think it does. And I think it, um, like I said earlier, I, I think it provides a longer term, more predictable path forward for the renewable fuels industry. Uh, EPA has always managed the RFS program previous to this uh, in a manner where they're setting these standards one year at a time. And as you said earlier, they've typically been late in, in publishing those final volumes. So we, we think uh, looking forward three years and, and sort of etching those volumes in stone gives the marketplace uh, more certainty and more clarity around what is going to be required, and it allows uh, for those investments to move forward. Uh, and, and we think these volumes set a floor for renewable fuels. There's nothing in the law that says we can't produce more than these volumes um, if the demand is there. And, and uh, frankly, we think there will be demand for more than what EPA will be requiring uh, under this proposal. Absolutely. So this is the proposed rule, Jeff. You mentioned they rolled that out in December. The final rule will be due when from EPA? Yeah, sometime in, in early to mid-June is, is when EPA will publish the final volumes. Um, they're accepting written comments uh, from the public through February 10th. So we've got another month to continue providing feedback and comments to the agency. We're certainly encouraging all of our members and, and uh, our farmer friends and everybody out there to weigh in with EPA uh, in support of the, the good stuff that's in this proposal. And, and you know, certainly don't be afraid to raise some concerns and questions about some of the, the aspects that we're not crazy about. Absolutely. You mentioned the electrical RINs, these E-RINs that are being worked into the proposal. Jeff, mm -hmm. does RFA have any comments on those uh, during this period? Well, we, we will have comments. And, and, you know, we're not opposed to the idea of electricity for use in electric vehicles being part of the renewable fuel standard. Congress always said, hey, if it's a renewable fuel that's used to power a vehicle, it can qualify for the RFS. So, if electricity is coming from renewable biomass, which is a requirement of the law, and it's being used as a transportation fuel, we, you know, we don't have any problem with uh, electricity being introduced in that way. What we do have a problem with is the way EPA is proposing to implement this program. Uh, rather than the fuel producer being the party that would generate the compliance credits, the RINs, um, EPA is proposing that the electric vehicle manufacturer would be the one that benefits from the RIN credits and, and generates the RIN credits uh, under this proposal. And we just, we're not quite sure exactly how that's gonna work. It's inconsistent that there's no other fuel produced under the renewable fuel standard that, that works that way. Um, and we don't think the RFS was ever intended to be a program to stimulate the production or, or encourage the production of certain vehicle types. Uh, it was all about encouraging renewable fuel production. So. Uh, we, we have been reminding EPA to get back to the basics and get back to the statutory intent of this program when it comes to electricity and these so-called ERENs. All right. Well, watch as that continues to get fleshed out heading into this summer. Yeah, I want to turn the focus back, Jeff, to demand. We've seen strong demand from United States consumers for biofuels over this past year, but I understand we're also seeing growing international demand. And India had a fun benchmark earlier this month. What happened over there? Yeah, so India uh, achieved a, a goal that they set several years ago of establishing a 10% ethanol blend rate nationwide, and, and they actually got there sooner than expected. So today in India, 10% uh, of their gasoline pool, just like here in the U.S., is now comprised of, of ethanol, and they got there very quickly. Um, and now they've got a goal to, to get to 20% ethanol blends 
on average nationwide. And, and so India is making huge progress. They've gone all in on ethanol, which is, is great to see. Um, they're adopting flex fuel vehicles, um, you know, really uh, a strong push from the government behind ethanol in that country right now. And in fact, um, RFA has a couple staff members in India today as we speak, along with the U.S. Grains Council and some other uh, delegates from the U.S. who are participating in a big auto show um, in New Delhi to really you know, spread the good word about ethanol and share the experience that we've had here in the U.S. and, and frankly learn what's going on in India because they are, are adopting some very progressive policies that are boosting the use of ethanol in that country. Now, in the case of India, Jeff, as their ethanol growth, as their ethanol consumption grows, could they be buying some American ethanol or do they look to establish an entirely domestic industry? Uh, they, they, I think they fully acknowledge that to, to continue growing uh, the market for ethanol in that country, they are going to need to rely, um, at least in part, on growth in, in imports uh, of ethanol. And, and certainly we expect to be trading some ethanol with, with India. We are today uh, shipping a, a fairly large amount of ethanol to, to, to the country of India. Much of that is being used for industrial applications. Um, but there is a big market there, and, and I think they, they fully recognize um, that they are going to have to increase the amount of ethanol that they import if they're going to meet some of these, uh, you know, aggressive goals they have. Like I said, they're trying to get to 20% blends nationwide in the next several years, and, and that would uh, certainly demand more ethanol than they're capable of producing domestically. All right, so they're going to have to turn to the world leader, which continues to be the United States. Jeff, in your conversation right. with ethanol producers around the country, as 2023 kicks off, how are they feeling about the business nature of ethanol looking out to this next year? Well, I'll say this. I mean, 2022 was a great year, uh, I think, across the industry. Um, all of the producers out there did, did very well uh, financially. We, we had some significant policy wins in, in Washington, D.C., uh, now, 2023 has gotten off to a little, uh, you know, rougher start in terms of, of demand, and, and we've got a fairly high level of stocks. Uh, people aren't driving quite as much, and, and so, you know, margins are down or more compressed and prices are down. We've got producers in, in part of the, some parts of the Corn Belt facing very high uh, basis prices for, for corn. Um, and so things aren't off to a great start, and it's going to be a little rough here in the first quarter. Uh, but we think longer term, uh, we're going to continue to see more growth, more expansion of higher ethanol blends like E15, uh, and, and greater exports and, and, and larger demand. So uh, we think we're in for a little bit of a rough patch here in the next few months. But beyond that, we're, we're expecting the future to continue to remain very bright for this industry. Over the next few months, Jeff, are we expecting any more states to allow E15 sales year-round? Well, yeah, that's that's the, really one of our top priorities as this year begins. Uh, we've got to get year-round E15 set in concrete for 2023 and, and beyond. And there's really two ways to get that done. One is legislatively, and so, of course, we're working with our friends in Congress to try and do that. But the other way is going state by state. And right now there are 10 states that have petitioned EPA to allow year-round E15, and we're hopeful that gets done before this summer starts. All right, we'll keep an eye on those news releases, see if those states will provide some additional freedom for their consumers this summer. Folks, we've been talking with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the RFA. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Have a good one. 
And folks, stick around when AOA returns. We're going to have that conversation with Chris Swift about the cattle markets. Stay here for more. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Each season, farmers put it all on the line. So it's just good business to get every advantage you can. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can give yourself a season-long advantage over weeds, and it can help boost your yield potential. Show weeds you mean business and learn more about guaranteed weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash sprayearly. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Sometimes life is wonderful. And sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready. 
and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. If you are in the cattle business and you have been to a feeder cattle sale at an auction barn recently, you have probably had your hair blown back. There is demand in the countryside for feeder cattle out there as 2023 gets underway. And I figured it was time we dig into the economics of that sector. Joining us now is Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company down in Nashville, Tennessee. And Chris, we're seeing a little pullback in the cattle today, a little bit of uh, temperament after the CPI release this morning. They're correct. We have been. The um, it's kind of interesting. You know, we have seen more and more cattle being brought up uh, for sale at these sale barns, and they have been pretty good. But what's a little bit bothersome too, because if we start filling in these marketing holes that we felt would come up in the January February time frame that makes for our June August live cattle, we're starting to fill those up. So. That's kind of a little bit, you know, negative on the front end there. It might be more bullish towards the back end, but we're not finding any evidence out there of any expansion taking place. All right. Are we still seeing herd contraction in the folks you talk to, Chris? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and here is another maybe unfortunate if you see a high enough price for these cattle, if they were to get high enough, you might see some producers sell more than what they thought we were. A lot of cattle are backwards a little bit because of the storms that we had a couple of weeks ago. They're not probably ready to be back out on the show list yet. So the quality of cattle is down just a little bit there. And I just don't foresee the cow-calf operator being in a position to forego revenue streams from selling heifers just yet. So it could be two to three more months before any kind of revenue stream comes back that says, now I can sell my steers for high enough that I could do without the revenue from the, uh, from the heifer sale. 
Well, and of course, the other way to get there, Chris, is those steer prices just continue to move higher. Taking a look at where the market sits on the feeder cattle side today, we're down, we're down dancing around here at close to the one-year highs in the CME feeder cattle index. How much more upside is out there on the physical? You know, it's, it's interesting to say because I'm not real sure. I know that it could be as easily as $20 higher if the deep pocket buyers come in there, but I'm not seeing cattle feeders be able to pencil in the price of the feeder cattle today. So I'm unsure how much more they're willing to put on them if, if they not see any pencil in today. And, and unfortunate, again, if they looked out into the future and said, oh, there's going to be a marketing hole in the May, June, July time frame there, I'm going to be able to hit that. Well, everybody else kind of sees that too and may be filling that hole up. That's the truth. And then, of course, when we get to summer, there's always the supply that can change when we add imports to the picture, beef imports in particular. Chris, what are you seeing down in Brazil? Are they going to be able to sell more finished beef up into the U.S. this year? Oh, absolutely. Their, their first quarter quota um, has already been done. So we, we haven't received all of it, but we're under the anticipation that, that we're going to receive the, the entire year's quota right on the very front end. So I think that we're going to have ample plenty of beef. If we look at the total number of cattle on feed, there's no shortage of cattle. They're down 2 3% from last year, which was still very elevated levels. So we're not short of cattle. We're not short of the cow kill. We haven't slowed the cow kill any. And there's always a looming dairy cow slaughter out there that could always increase and make things even worse. Ew, that is a good point. I hadn't considered that. Have you heard stories of, of dairy cow liquidation? No, but I have seen milk, cheese, and butter all in a bear market. And, and those type things with feed costs as expensive as what they are right now. And we know that pasture conditions are in very poor shape from the drought. When we begin to increase our pasture conditions, fertilization and stuff, we've got to do that on less and less revenue coming into our, to our uh, operation. That's true. And of course, that revenue all goes back to the final price of those fat animals. Chris, you mentioned we've got those marketing holes we're filling in for this summer. As you look at fat cattle prices later on in the year, third and fourth quarter 2023, is that optimism still there for, for profitability for cattle feeders? It, it will be if they do have some kind of expansion. If you, if you do stop the liquidation, so let me rephrase that. You're not going to expand for, for a year and a half to two years. But what you could do is you could stop liquidation. I mean, slowing the cow slaughter, slowing the heifer placement. And right now, I don't see where that's going to take place. Um, probably March, April, May, when we get warm weather, we get some grass growing, maybe that changes some attitudes. but. Again, it's all going to depend on revenue, and unfortunately, if we do have a decline in feeder cattle prices, calf prices, then that just makes it all much worse. Now we don't have any uh, revenue streams, and we don't have any forethought of getting any higher prices into the future. Chris, I want to bring our attention back to the beef market. We saw that choice select spread go very wide immediately following Christmas. What has it done since then? How have the consumers been reacting to this beef out there in the marketplace? You know, I, I think we have lost a little bit of the beef demand, and that's primarily from the restaurant industry. Labor has been an issue in every industry that we have, and restaurants are no different. And when you go out for a nice steak dinner and you're going to pay the kind of money that you do, 
you want the service to be excellent. And that's one thing that I'm hearing over and over again is the labor market so tight, finding those really good servers out there that can make that meal that much more enjoyable. That is a good point. You don't think about the dining environment impacting how much you're willing to spend on a meal, but it certainly does. And when we're talking high quality, high value beef like this, it definitely has an impact. Chris, other than the supply and demand estimates coming out later today, what are you watching for news here for the beef market? Um, for the beef market, we're watching the corn market, corn and fuel. So the corn market, new crop corn already kind of in a bear market, and we're losing a little bit of steam in the old crop contract much. Probably diesel fuel, the biggest issue. If we start to see diesel fuel rally again, we may want to do something a bit. But other than that, I think the cattle feeder might start to see a little bit improvement in his input cost. That'd be good news for a lot of folks running these cattle. Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll break down today's supply and demand estimates from the USDA. We'll see you then for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. collaboration platform on ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next monthly grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.